campaign that we've been in for a while now. It's called Resilient Christianity. We're going through the book of 1 Peter. Um, I've been saying week after week, we live in uh, what's been called the post-Christian culture, meaning that a lot of the Christian values, uh, uh, assumptions, kind of the cultural air that we've breathed for uh, our, most of our lifetime has been predominated by Christian thinking and values and virtues and truths. Uh, that's changed, and that's changed rather rapidly for many of us. And now the question is, how do we live in it, right? Like, how do we live in this new culture? How, does, uh, how do we take our Christian faith, and how does that intersect with the society around us? And the good news is that as we do uh, change, our culture shifts, our culture begins to look a lot more like the teaching of the New Testament. And so the teachings tend to apply more readily to how we engage with the culture around us. So 1 Peter was written to a group of Christians who have been exiled, most likely from Rome, and they've been sent to distant regions of what is now Turkey or Asia Minor. So they weren't wanted in Rome, in their society there. They were kicked out of there. And they also aren't wanted in their new society because they're being persecuted there. So Peter's encouraging them. He's writing them to encourage them to have a resilient Christianity, to have a resilient faith, to develop this resilience. And what we saw last week was he doesn't tell them to run for the hills, to go like live a monastic lifestyle and get out of there. Uh, he doesn't tell them to fight against the culture and to have this culture war mentality. No, he, he tells them to live with a faithful presence, honor Christ, represent Christ well, and follow his way, but also you're going to contextualize your faith depending on the society that you're in. Like, don't be just unnecessarily combative, is what he's trying to say. So, we talked about that last week through the lens of how do we relate to government. He said, submit to your governing authorities. We talked about it in the lens of how the household codes, like how should uh, servants treat their masters, how should wives and husbands interact. Um, those are the bedrock principles of the Greco-Roman world. So what he's saying is, Contextualize the faith, right? Follow Jesus in the societal structure in which you find yourself in. We don't need to upend the whole thing, right? But be faithful to Christ in the midst of it. So, big picture. Remember, we're on to the application parts of the text. Peter has given us a bunch of theology that has to be the background, the grounding of how we live now, is that theology that we spent a few weeks on in the beginning. Now, it's how do we live? Right, what do we do? What do we do with this? All of this good theology that we've been talking about. So last week I bit off way more than I can chew, and I was super late. So I'm not going to make that same mistake again. So you're welcome, everybody. You're like, man, I'm glad I wasn't here last week. If you were, here. <laughs> if you were you're like, we remember. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to take one section of it, okay? But in the devotional, we're going to cover basically almost two chapters. Um, it's all one theme. It's all the theme of... Uh, continue living in righteousness even if it leads to suffering, is what he's trying to say through all of it. He's like, do, keep doing what is right and honoring God even if it leads to suffering. That's how Jesus was treated. He goes through a lot of examples. This is kind of the big idea of the whole section that ends in 419, uh, which he talked about as well in the household codes from last week. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, I mean, there's a lot to even unpack about this, that it may be God's will for us to suffer. It was for Jesus. It was for the apostles. 
So we have to wrestle with that. It's not the prosperity gospel. We'll talk about that later. The prosperity gospel says if you have enough faith, if you give enough money, if you do X, Y, Z, then your life will be perfect. That is an Americanized version of the gospel, right? And it's not true at all. But we tend to carry that assumption even if Scripture nowhere says it to be true because the culture influences us more than we think, right? Okay, so this is the big idea. And as Christians, this is the key to resilience of faith in a culture that is antagonistic to Christianity. Entrust your soul to God. (laughs) He has to be the one that you trust so much. It's when suffering and persecution comes, that's where your trust in God will really be tested. Do you really trust him? Do you trust him enough to continue doing what's right, even if it will lead to you being socially ostracized? Do you trust him enough to continue doing what's right, even if you may lose your job? over it. Do you trust God? Do you trust him? He's the faithful creator. Continue doing good. Okay, let's dive into it. We're going to begin 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. He's going to list five virtues here. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Okay, so Unity, this term means sharing, common heritage of faith, ethical traditions. Uh, The church is to be like-minded and centered on the gospel of Jesus. I listened to a podcast this week where Russell Moore, he comments that if we are in the church really, truly united around the gospel, we won't be so easily divided over these secondary and tertiary issues. And over even far less than like doctrinal issues. We won't be divided over ethical questions or annoyances. Does the gospel really unite us is kind of the question that he's asking. Sympathy. Sympathy, this isn't uniquely Christian, but if you exist in any community, you have to have sympathy for one another. So we should be like-minded in the gospel, but in those areas that we can disagree on, we need to have sympathy for one another. Sympathy requires you understand where the other person is coming from. You can understand their opinion, understand why they live the way they live. You can understand why they have a different personality than you, as we'll talk about in Identity 101, and why they just kind of drive you nuts sometimes. But that's okay, (laughs) right? We have to have sympathy for one another in community to exist together. And then he says brotherly love. This one is obviously brotherly, right? Reserved for the family in the Greco-Roman world. It's the word Philadelphia, so our city, right? The city of brotherly love. Um, again, last week we talked about how important the household codes were to the Greco-Roman culture. They were the foundation of their society. Here what Peter's doing is taking a term that they reserved for that, which is so common to us now, but they reserved for their, their families and then their homes. And he's applying it to the church, Okay. So, church, we need to love one another like brothers and sisters in Christ. It's very simple. But that was a pretty dramatic claim in the first century to apply that to the church community, in which they have slaves meeting together, and they have groups of people that would not be found together in any other social context but in the church. They're supposed to love one another like a family. Tender hearts, compassion. Our hearts should go out to one another. This is... One, an attribute of God that should be a virtue that Christians, you, can, you should regularly check of whether you're growing in this. 
Do you experience more and more compassion for somebody who's hurting in the church community? Brother and sister in Christ whom you love, when they are hurting, our heart should go out to them. And we should feel that gut compassion. And a humble mind. This one, the other ones are regularly included as virtues in the Greco-Roman world. They took their virtues very seriously. Uh, Humility was one that they actually despised. They viewed it as weakness. Commentator J.H. Eliot on this, he writes, in a highly competitive and stratified, uh, in the highly competitive and stratified world of the Greco-Roman antiquity, only those of degraded social status were humble. And humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame and inability to defend one's honor. So here Peter is, again, taking some of the cultural virtues and saying, like, these are Christian as well, but now he's cutting against it, where he's saying, this is rooted in Jesus. Jesus was humble. The culture says, don't be humble. Culture says, stand up for your honor. Don't let anybody talk bad about you. Get back, get even. But Jesus, what did he do, as we've already discussed? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so Christians are to have that mindset of humility. And it's similar in our culture today, where I think we, we give lip service to humility. Um, I'm thinking about it through the lens of basketball. It's basketball season, right? Uh, we give lip service to humility, and we say, oh, this guy's so humble. Uh, but also, <laughs> I saw a highlight the other day where a uh, guy, they got into a fight, right? A dude came up and like hit another player. And then like the expectation is you stand up for your buddy. And like if somebody pushes somebody else, you go, you push them, right? And you stand up for them and you get even with them. Don't let them hit you. And then if the, the one guy got hit and then the whole thing started, they started a big brawl. It was a big fight. So we give lip service to it, but then we watch that and we're like, yeah, get them. <laughs> That's not Jesus, right? Jesus walked to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter, right? And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That's why it's so important for us to have the mind of Christ and to set Jesus up as our example. It says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Whoa, for to this you were called, he says. Okay, so he doesn't even just say, like, be quiet in the face of evil and reviling. He says, no, un- like, bless them. And that's what we're called to do. He takes it a step further of praying a blessing over someone. To bless means to invoke God's favor into somebody's life. Woof. So talk about going even beyond, just like not saying anything. Pray for God to bless them. That's a humble heart, humble disposition. Okay, now really quick before we go on. The first week of this campaign, I walked through the life of Peter in the Gospels and said, like, let's compare and contrast the Peter there to the Peter here. Um, so this is the Peter who, when Jesus said he was going to suffer and die, he says, never, Lord. And Jesus rebukes him, telling him, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. Right? This is the Peter who, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he breaks out his sword and cuts a guy's ear off. He's like, all right, let's fight back. Jesus, don't let him take you. Now he's saying this. Whoa. What changed? Jesus. Jesus changed. 
He saw the life of Jesus, and it totally changed his perspective so that now his entire life, which was formerly rooted in Judaism and in other ideologies about how to live and how to coexist in society, now it's solely rooted on Jesus so that he's willing to say, let's follow the same path as Jesus. And even if, like, Jesus was arrested, Jesus was unjustly crucified on the cross, but he saw the other side of that of God glorifying him by raising him from the dead and him ascending into heaven. So he's saying fully trust in God. That's what a full trust in God looks like, is to be willing to endure evil, reviling, and to bless in response. Wow. Hard to do. Peter did it. He totally changed because of the life of Jesus. And his whole life, again, was rooted on the cornerstone of Christ. Okay, so he says you will receive a blessing if you live like this. Now he's going to quote Psalm 34. This was written by David when he was fleeing from Saul and was a sojourner in Gath, and he pretends to be insane. (laughs) But Psalm 34 then would have really hit home with the people he's writing to, because David was a sojourner. They're in exile. Get it? So he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For why the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. So why should you live righteously even in the midst of persecution? Uh, It's nothing less than God's attention is on you. God turns his eyes towards you, turns his face towards you, it means his attention is on you. His ears towards you, he's open to hearing your prayers. So keep living in righteousness, and the blessing is God. The presence of God. The attention of God. And if you're like, oh, well, that's not great. You don't get the presence of God. Right? You need to understand how much of a blessing that is. To continue living righteously, even if it leads to suffering, because you have God. You have the presence of God. That is the best blessing that we can ever experience in this life. But, he says, the face of the Lord is against, is against those who do evil. God is a just God. So continue doing righteousness, even if it leads to suffering. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's just a general uh, proverbial statement In general, this holds true, right? Like, if you're zealous for doing good, like, generally, people aren't going to pick on you as much. Now, we all think of examples of reasons. We'll get into that in a second here. But if somebody wants to fight you, and you're like, uh, and you don't, like, retaliate back, oh, yeah, but, and, like, your mama jokes, whatever, and, like, get get back at them, (laughs) and you're like, actually, I'm praying for God to bless you. <laughs> like, like, who's going to fight you, right? Like, it's not going to happen all that often. <laughs> Think of the high school scenes. Like, what a boring movie, right? Like, all, from all the movies, if somebody's getting, like, bullied or if, like, you know, the, the main character, the main action hero, right, he just responds with, like, a, uh, I'm not going to pull out the AK and start firing. Like, I'm going to pray for God to bless you, <laughs> May God's favor be on you, my enemies. Boring movie, much more like Jesus, right? (laughs) 
Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? He's also not naive, though, that even if you do do good, you may suffer. But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, but if you do good and you suffer, remember Peter was put in prison by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem because he believed in Jesus, right? He knows that this is happening throughout the world. Persecution is about to ramp up in the, uh, in the Greco-Roman world against Christians. Nero's about to like, light Christians on fire in the street and feed them to lions in the Colosseum. So he's not naive. You'll be blessed. So even if you are persecuted for doing what is right, you're still not justified in retaliation and seeking vengeance. Justice, yes. Like, use the means that society has given us to pursue justice. That is good. Justice is a good thing. It's a good thing of God. Vengeance, retaliation is not. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll still be blessed. Remember, his whole life is based on the life of Jesus now. His entire ethic is rooted around Jesus. He says, have no fear of them, those who would persecute you or harm you for righteousness' sake. You're supposed to fear God, as he's already said, but not them. Nor be troubled. I love the word for troubled in the Greek. It is this word that implies like something that is shaken up. So if you blend smoothies, right? <laughs> when you turn that blender on, everything just goes and it's like crazy in there. So many of us, that's how our inner life feels. Right? It's crazy. It's chaotic. It's turbulent. It's troubled. It's all messy. That's one of the signs or indicators of a soul that is disoriented. She says, don't have fear of them, don't be troubled, even if you're staring in the face of persecution at the most powerful empire in the world of the day. What do we do instead? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is the main, main verb here in verse 15. Primary imperative, don't fear them or be troubled, instead honor Christ as holy. First of all, this is a quote from Isaiah 8, 12 to 13. Um, and what Peter does is he substitutes Christ for Yahweh. All right? So you'll hear some folks say, like, Jesus never claimed to be God. The uh, New Testament never claims Jesus was God. Nope, they did. He did. Like, this is either the worst blasphemy ever to substitute Jesus or anybody for Yahweh, or it's true. Or he's God, right? So this is Peter claiming Jesus is God. Then he says, on your hearts, in your hearts, this is the seat of your will, what you pursue, what you are willing to drive for, what drives you, what gets you out of bed in the morning and keeps you going. Uh, it has to be the Lord. He has to be the one, the one in the ultimate seat. Jesus Christ. Your vision of the good life has to be so informed by Jesus that this is what you're driving towards. And this is what creates resilience in a culture that is antagonist to the Christian faith. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him apart. That's what holy means. He's distinct. He's different. He holds that seat that nobody else does. Number one. So this is the main idea. When we come to this verse, this verse is often quoted <laughs> in Christian circles because of what he says next. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's a lot, right? Like, but just be ready to give an answer for somebody who asks you why you believe in Jesus is what it means. 
Uh, the Greek word here is apologia, and I don't do this often where I drop as many Greek words in the sermon. Um, basically, an entire Christian discipline has been built off of this called apologetics. Right? It's a re the reasons for why we believe what we believe. And I love apologetics. This entire field of study of just giving logical reasons of defenses for the faith. Okay. The hope here is the hope that we share among all believers of salvation and the life that we're living now, the inheritance that we have in eternity, this living hope, as he said earlier, and that Christ is, or that the Father is guarding us for this salvation that will be revealed in the end. Then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. If you stop there, all the uh, Theo bros would be real happy, but they're not. He goes on. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. <laughs> so you can't just own the opposition and defeat them soundly with your flawless logic and great arguments that make them feel small and stupid. Like, that's how Theo bros tend to act online, okay? <laughs> but he says, do this with gentleness and respect. And so that is not to be our heart. Having a good conscience, just owning the opposition in an argument that doesn't leave you with a good conscience, it shouldn't, at least, because you're not acting in love then. You're acting out of self, selfishness and a desire to prove that you're right. This good conscience that he speaks of is so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So they're trying to shame the Christians, and he's saying, no, you guys should have such integrity that when people talk bad against you, the rest of the community looks at what they're saying and says, like, really? Him? Her? That church community? They've done so much good, and they've loved people so well for so long. Ah, I don't buy it, right? This is built over time. This type of integrity, this type of life that this reputation in the community is built over time, doing the right thing, doing good, so that when we are slandered, the rest of the community looks at that and says, no, <laughs> that's not it. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Again, he indicates here that it may be God's will for us to suffer. Just don't let it be for your own sin or for your own evil. Keep doing good. And if you suffer, if it's God's will for you to suffer like it was God's will for Jesus to suffer, it was God's will for the apostles to suffer, it's God's will for the prophets to suffer. We see this all through scripture, and yet still in our Americanized gospel, we're like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if I have enough faith, God will give me everything I want. It's ridiculous. But we still get there somehow. Just keep doing good, is this point. For Christ, band, you guys can come and get set up here. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ was perfectly righteous, and yet he suffered and died. So that old framework of any suffering is the result of sin, Peter's like, out the window. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't hold up based on the example of Jesus. Because he suffered once for sins, that he might bring us to God. So that the people of God, again, this is the goal. This is what the greatest blessing in all of life, in all of creation is, is to be with God. And that's the great blessing that God has given us in Christ. 
that he took our place, he took our sin upon himself, he was the perfectly righteous one, perfectly holy, he took our unrighteousness upon himself and died in our place so that we could be brought to God. And then he goes on, but being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus was crucified, but he knows he's going to launch into what happens next. He's risen from the dead. He ascends into heaven in glory and power. So he's encouraging the church. Guys, keep doing right, even if it leads to suffering. Look at the life of Jesus. He did, was perfectly righteous. He was put to death, but God raised him from the dead. And he ascended into heaven, and he is now seated on the throne with all power and glory and majesty. Follow his path of life. When we come back, we'll apply it, but our big idea is if we honor Christ as holy in our hearts, continue to live Christian vir- with Christian virtue, even if it leads to suffering. It's the center of it, honoring Christ the Lord as holy and trusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Lord, we just thank you for your word that teaches us, that gives us the paradigm, the example of Jesus to follow. And Lord, I pray for your people that we would trace your life like we traced letters in kindergarten. We would pattern our entire life, our entire thinking after you, Jesus, your life, your example, your teaching is true. And Lord, that we would cherish the greatest blessing in all of life of being with you. Here's our big idea. If we honor Christ as holy in our hearts, meaning he is the primary object of our affection and devotion, that he, his life is the definition of the good life. It's not the American dream, it's Jesus. In his life, and his teaching, uh, we'll continue to live with Christian virtue, if, even if it leads to suffering. Now, I want to kind of circle back to an idea that I touched on uh, before, and where Peter says that the greatest blessing, or the blessing of living righteously and following the way of Jesus, even if it leads to suffering, is to experience the presence of God. How he says that Christ, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous so that we can be brought to God. Again, if you hear those words and you're thinking like, that's not that great of a blessing, Peter. Like, you got more for me, right? (laughs) Oh, that just like, my heart just went out when I said that. Like, I want that for you so badly to experience the presence of God. Because once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and once you've experienced the presence of God, everything else in this life pales in comparison. Whatever other dreams you have, whatever other goals you have, nothing else is worth pursuing with all of you than that, than God, his presence and being with him. Mark Sayers, I think he said it this way. I might miss a word here or there. Uh, But I heard him say this on a podcast. He said, renewal is when experience of the presence of God goes viral. That's what we're praying for at Renewal Night. That's what I hope and I long for you to experience is more and more of the presence of God in your life. And that that would just go viral in our church. That would go viral in our community. That's when God moves in revival. And it starts with the church. It starts with us, the people of God, desiring, longing for the power of God, the spirit of God, and the presence of God. So 
stop at nothing. <laughs> if you haven't experienced that, to where that is the primary object of your affection and devotion and your will and everything that you're striving for is to be with God and in his presence and to rest in the peace of knowing that Jesus has brought you into the presence of God. <sighs> My prayer is that you would experience that. And that would be the greatest blessing in creation to you. And that everything else would pale in comparison. That Jesus Christ would be Lord in your heart. All right. Now moving on to what I actually intended to say. Um, Peter gives us this list of Christian virtues, five of them. This isn't all of them. There's more. Right. <clears throat> but... These, in our American uh, results-oriented culture, <laughs> we so often get the cart before the horse. We say, tell me what to do. When everywhere in Scripture, they point us to these, of these are who you should be. These virtues are virtues of your inner life. And they can be formed through the disciplines, but these are things that happen deep within you. And it takes time and reflection and prayer and living the way of Jesus like he did, fasting, to grow in these. And ultimately, they're produced in us by God. But for our purposes today... When you're examining your life in the faith, look at these, right? Especially as it pertains to the culture around you and the society that we live in. Are you growing in compassion? Especially in political seasons, this is a big one, right? Are you growing in sympathy for people who disagree with you? Is your desire and your longing for unity for brotherly love, even with those who just irk you? And are you experiencing more and more humility, like Jesus? Or, thinking of the alternatives, are you experiencing pride? Are you experiencing, hate, experiencing hatred, divisions? These are the questions we ask ourselves and reflect on our inner life. And we have to. And when we're growing in these, that means we're growing in the way of Jesus. And if we're not, that means we're growing in something else. <laughs> and we need to course correct and make Jesus the model. Set him apart as Lord and pursue him and follow him with everything that we are. Jesus even says this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good tree produces good fruit. So we have to explore our depths in our inner life. That's why we're going to talk about soul care. <laughs> this is why we're doing renewal nights. That's why I keep talking about this stuff. Right? John's so sappy and talking about... <laughs> talking, he's crying all the time. And talking about his heart and stuff and soul. Like, these are so important, you guys. If we get these things right... All of the what do I do questions, they often become clear if we get these right.
I'm going to sit on one for just a second again. Um, unity. <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote that I thought of it last night at like midnight and have it on my phone. I don't know where my phone is, so uh, I can't quote it exactly. But he has this quote that essentially says, if, if, uh, if, our, if we love our vision of the church more than we love the church, we will destroy the church. That's what he says. So what he means by that is we all have this picture of what the church should be. We all have this picture of what a good church experience is. Get that out of your head. Get that out of your head. No matter how good it is, no matter how awesome it is, Jesus promises that he will build his church. And we just love the people sitting here. We care for them. We teach them to live the way Jesus called us to live. If we have this picture of what the church is, and as a pastor, I've had to do this so many times. I am so prone to this, of having my vision, my picture of what the church needs to be and should be, and then striving and driving for that and moving, trying to move you all into that. And I end up doing more harm than good most of the time. So instead of that, surrender to the will of God. God, what is your will for this church community? What is your will for me within this church community? God, I'm going to love the people that you have placed here in front of me. And we are going to call one another towards the way of Jesus and just obey Christ together. <clears throat> Next. Very simply, bless those who persecute you. That's what Peter's telling us to do. As Christians, we're called to go a step further. So what I'm going to do is just take a moment. Um, John, would you mind just noodling on, is that noodling or strumming on the guitar? What's the term? Noodling works? Okay. Cool. <laughs> and I just want to ask you to take a moment and just reflect on that person, that group of people that just, oh, they get you. They get under your skin. Maybe someone said something this week at work. Maybe some, somebody is just getting you. Uh, coworker, neighbor, friend, family member, uncle said something on social media. I don't know. They tend to get you. Just pray a blessing over them. This is a powerful practice that reorients us to the way of Jesus. When we're mad at somebody, pray for God to bless them. And remember, you're invoking God's favor into their life. So just take a moment and pray for that person.
All right. The next, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. I often wonder why this is so hard for us as Christians. Right. Apologetics tends to be really hard. I talk to a lot of Christians who say, like, if somebody asks me a question, like, I won't know what to say. And we freak out about this, right? <laughs> There's lots of reasons, I think, that we can have for that. Like, we don't feel like we know enough, and that's fine. You don't have to. If I can just put your mind at ease, it's okay. You don't have to. Somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, say, I don't know. Somebody asked me a question in the lobby on the way out, and I said, I don't know. It's fine to say, I don't know, let's figure out the answer together. That's cool. Um, sometimes, though, or maybe it's just it, the stakes are high, right? We feel like, if I get this wrong, uh, put your mind at ease there as well. God works through some of the worst answers that I've ever heard that I've ever given, that other people have. The Spirit of God is powerful, and he is good. Um, and God does his work in people's hearts far more than we can on our own. Okay? Put your minds at ease there on those two. But the other potential reason that I can think of is um, that we can only know in and of ourselves, only you can know if this is true or not, so I'm not saying that this is true for you or not, but reflect on it. It's worth the thought. And it's worth praying on. Um, is... You just don't, like, love and cherish Jesus enough. <laughs> and uh, I say that, I kind of chuckle when I say it because it's so simple and what, but whatnot. But um, if I were to ask you, why are you a Packers fan? Right. If I were to ask you to explain to me your favorite TV show and why you love it so much. If I were to ask you, what's your favorite restaurant, right? Uh, if I were to ask you, tell me about your kids and why you love them so much. Tell me about your spouse. My guess is we would be overjoyed that somebody asked us that, and we would love to answer those questions, right, and to share why we love those things so much. But why is it different? with Jesus? Why is it different with the hope that we have? It's worth reflecting on. Maybe I don't cherish Jesus. Maybe I haven't set Jesus apart as holy in my heart, or he is the one I long for the most. Be prepared. Give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. We're going to sing one more song together. And as we do, I just want you to reflect on that. Just how awesome Jesus is. <laughs> how great it is to know him. And then, if you struggle with giving a reason for the hope that you have, come to Ownership 101. We'll go through God's story. That's the whole point of that, is to give you the story of the gospel so that you have the words to say uh, and how your story interacts with that. Just delight in worshiping God together as we're doing here. Delight in the private worship that you get to commune with God throughout your week. Just delight in Christ. Start there. And I think those reasons will start to come.
you'll search them out for why you love Jesus so much. Because we love to tell people about the things that we love. And let's make Jesus number one. <laughs> Lord, Jesus, you are so good. You are so great. There's nobody like you in all creation. Lord, no one else is worthy of our praise. And so, God, we just set you apart as holy in our hearts now. Just give you everything, Lord. You're the object of our devotion and our affection. So, Lord, we want to just long to tell people about you, to experience your presence and your goodness, and just be with you. So, Jesus, I pray that we would just delight in you now as we worship together and experience your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's worship.